Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am channeling Brussels, getting newsmakers, movers, and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. Now, elections are just getting underway across the European Union, where citizens in 28 countries are choosing their next joint parliament. That's 751 lawmakers for now, which will shrink a bit if and when Brexit actually happens. And with so much at stake, it's inevitable that people want to sway the outcome. Some of those people are, of course, registered candidates, party members, activists, lobbyists, etc. But an increasing number of influencers aren't even people at all. They're online, they're bots, fake profiles, duplicate Facebook accounts, organizations that aren't what they say they are or don't even exist except for a budget to buy political advertising. The European Commission put in place a plan to prevent serious meddling in the vote, but only six months ago, they enlisted the big tech giants to play their part in disabling and discouraging misuse of the platforms. At the last monthly assessment of how well that effort is going, the Commission gave the tech partners credit for taking some measures, but said they could be doing better. Independent fact-checkers and media organizations have been contributing as well. Nonetheless, earlier this week, the Avaz Online Activist Network released the results of its own three-month investigation, which showed that despite these collaborative efforts, right-wing networks have succeeded in putting up and running more than 500 fake Facebook profiles or pages, resulting in more than a half a billion views of largely anti-EU or anti-migrant or anti-Semitic material. Many of the tactics being used are familiar to anyone who watched the 2016 U.S. elections closely. But what we have not seen is any huge role played by the Kremlin, at least not yet. And now to my guest, whom I was very happy to track down ahead of the elections, because he's just been extremely busy preparing a report on how governments can safeguard against electoral interference. Sebastian Bay is a senior expert at NATO's Strategic Communications Center of Excellence in Riga, Latvia, and he truly is an expert on the lure of disinformation. His new study looks at deterrent measures in Estonia, Finland, Latvia, and Sweden, what worked to prevent meddling in recent national elections, and why. Here's Sebastian. Thank you very much, Sebastian, for, for taking time to talk to us today. It's a, a busy time just before elections, and you're, you are writing about preparations for those elections. So just to start off with, can you just sort of give me an overall uh, uh, guess at what the threat level is right now for the European elections? You've looked at some preparations in, in, in four countries. You've surely seen reporting on, on the others. Are the European elections in good shape to maintain their integrity despite the efforts that are being made to, to meddle in them? I think so. I think we are in good shape. I think there's been substantial effort at local, at regional, at national and at EU level. So I think we have done substantial work for prevention to, uh, to plug the holes in the fences, to, so to say, to, to shore up our uh, defenses and to send a strong message against antagonists that we are ready. But there is also significant work in terms of limitation. That means that if something happens, we are significantly more ready to respond and to limit the consequences of any interference. So, so the work done over the past two years have improved our ability to identify and counter substantially. Um, 
in a few days we'll know uh, if our efforts uh, have been successful but my general take on this is that we we have been successful we have we have built a much stronger and a much more resilient union against election interference. What did you find to be the, the biggest threats? Uh, we decided to study STRATCOM preparations or preparations to protect elections in uh, four of the countries that are members of NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence. So we looked at Sweden, Latvia, Estonia and Finland uh, because all of these countries have recently uh, held elections. So we decided to look at uh, the preparations undertaken and some of the lessons learned from this effort. And all of these four countries had uh, undertaken extensive preparations ahead of their national elections. Um, all of these countries held election from 2018 uh, and now early in 2019 as well. So there was ample time uh, between uh, the interference that we saw in the US presidential election in 2016 and the 2018-2019 election cycle. So, so there was a lot of time to prepare, but what we wanted to know was what were some of the lessons identified and what are the, were some of the common practices uh, that were shared between these countries. So then we look at threats against elections as administrative processes. That means hacking of election management systems, spreading of disinformation about reliability of election. It means uh, uh, looking at threats against the will and ability of voters to participate. That means antagonists spreading disinformation about where, when and how to vote. And then finally uh, threats against elections as a political process. So this whole spectrum. And then the question most people ask is then, well, who, who are these antagonists and who are the threat? And we decided in all these countries not to look at it from that perspective, um, but rather to look at it from a vulnerabilities perspective. If we know uh, which uh, areas of elections have been targeted in previous elections, we also know where to focus and which processes to strengthen, irrespective of who the antagonist is, if that is a foreign state or if that is a local actor. To be honest, the four countries that you picked um, would not be representative of the EU as a whole because they are perhaps the most resilient. They're the countries that are well experienced in having Russia um, mess with them. Um, Finland hosts the Hybrid Threat Center of Excellence. Um, Estonia hosts the Cyber Center of Excellence. So, I mean, and, and then of course you, you've got Latvia there where, where you're based. Um, this is not, these countries are, are the best of the best, aren't they? So we thought that there was many lessons to be learned from our cases because, as you say, we were well prepared. Uh, all of these countries take the threat from election interference very serious. So there were, um, there were preparations, there were a, a, a shared understanding of the threat. And that is a threat not only from external actors uh, as other nation states, uh, most often uh, Russia, but also because of developments that we have seen locally. Um, in Sweden, uh, where I'm from, for example, during the 2014 elections, we saw, um, we saw groups trying to attack the elections. There was a couple of election uh, polling, booth, uh, polling stations that were attacked uh, by uh, um, ultra-right-wing groups. So that was, that was a local context that we saw in one of these countries. So there were several factors that came together and said that, okay, uh, countries need to put more effort into strengthening the resilience of elections, seeing that there are threats, nation states, as we saw in 2016, but also internal developments that necessitates um, 
um, more preparation. So we saw that there were lessons learned and we uh, at the NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence we decided to put together a report to study these four countries and see where were the lessons identified, what are some of the best practices or some of the frameworks that, uh, that we can share with other countries that are going through uh, the same process of thinking how do we understand the threats and uh, what can we do to better protect ourselves. I'm looking at, at what, you, um, what you identified as the most critical aspects um, that uh, the platforms, that the, that the tech side needs to, needs to do to help with this. And um, you said they need more monitoring of, of coordinated attempts, so finding this, uh, the, the activity, you know, monitoring the activity that can be identified as, as inauthentic, monitoring of impersonation of government and public accounts, ad transparency, recognition and elimination of non-organic manipulation, more transparency and accountability to enable greater public insight and involvement and user-friendly integration of fact-checking mechanisms. We've been having briefings now by, by the European Commission on their efforts, the code of conduct of the platforms, and they're giving them, I would say, a better than passing grade. What did you find? We started this already in 2017, uh, starting to prepare for, for election season. And uh, many of these things that we recommend are processes that have been set up and have been implemented to some degree. Um, take for an example monitoring of impersonation of government or public accounts. Uh, when we started discussing this problem uh, some years ago, there were no institutional frameworks to reach out to the platforms to have them to, uh, uh, to take swift action. Let's say for an example that the election commission in a country, their websites or their uh, presence on social media platforms is hijacked. Uh, you need uh, a direct way to reach uh, the social media companies. So that exists now uh, in the four countries we studied for sure and in many of the other countries as well. So what is being discussed now um, which also came up during the Christchurch call is uh, whether or not there needs to be a, a platform at a higher level as well to coordinate this appro approach. But overall um, I agree with the Commission. The platforms have done a lot to improve uh, their work, their, uh, their work of identifying coordinated inauthentic behavior, but also in, in removing coordinated inauthentic behavior. That doesn't mean that, that we are satisfied or that we think that there is uh, not more work that needs to be done. There, there is a lot more work that needs to be done to, uh, to make social media platforms a safer place during elections and for the public as a whole. Uh, so we listed six aspects which we think are important uh, for election-related uh, purposes. Transparency is, is one of those things and the social media companies have done quite a lot when it comes to ad transparency. That doesn't mean that we can't do more in terms of uh, monitoring um, and reporting from the companies. But, uh, but I think it's been, a, it's been a promising development during the last six months. Uh, and that is a, a development that which we want to encourage and push forward. But speaking of six months, why did they wait until only six months before the election to launch their counter disinformation campaign? That's a question a lot of us have. If you knew since 2016 just how bad it could get, um, and uh, you know it was bad enough then, even though we've learned a lot more since, um, why didn't they start immediately to say, hey, we've got this 28 country election in 2019? Um, let's put everything out there right now, work as fast as we can, so that, so that our general populations are more resilient by the time they go to the, the polls. No, that's a good question, and, and I agree a lot of people have been asking that. Why, why has the start been so slow? Why did it take such a long time to, uh, 
for the social media platforms to to step it up. Um, if you listen or for to the what commission say, to demand that, it is actually what I meant. I mean, the, the social media platforms, I mean, have their own interests, but the European Commission, I mean, th their very existence is, uh, you know, related to how well this election comes out. So f I think from a European perspective, it has gone incredibly fast, actually. Um, looking at how how European processes with 28 countries having to agree with this coordination work. So to have... Uh, recommendations and um, a code of conduct and an action plan within a year and a half is uh, by European standards fast. Um, should they have started earlier? I think they did start earlier but it, it took this time and, and part of this time is because it's been a it's been a prolonged negotiations with the platforms as well to get them to sign up to this. So um, yes we Backed can, by we can, threats course, that they would be legislated if they didn't right? So I think it's been a combination of, of stick and carrot, but also to, to get the platforms to understand the problem. I think they themselves have said several times that they didn't quite appreciate uh, the problem. There's a famous quote from Mark Zuckerberg, who, who, uh, who in the beginning was very skeptical about uh, interference into the US presidential election. So it was a process for them coming around, and it was a prolonged negotiation with the European Union regarding um, regulation and uh, cooperation as well um, because yes uh, there has always been uh, a discussion to what extent there should be regulation but for this to be effective there needs to be cooperation there needs to be a shared understanding of the problem and that has that has taken this time so uh, could everyone have been faster maybe um, but at the same time I feel a lot of actors pushed as hard as they can and they did take the problem serious. We'll, we'll see in hindsight, you know, now the elections are soon and we'll know afterwards, um, was it enough in time? My feeling at this point is that uh, a lot of these mechanisms are in place and we are much better protected. Uh, and the union as a whole uh, has substantial capabilities nowadays to identify if there is attempts to interfere in the elections and also uh, to take measures to counteract such interference if it happens. Um, and I want to get to, to more of the specifics in the report because some of them are things that everyday people can do or at least should be aware of to help protect themselves. But just on this last point about some of the actors perhaps not being ready to move forward or being ready to move at different speeds, those of us who've been following the East Stratcom task force know this very well that that they get blamed for not doing more at the same time as member states don't want to fund them. Vice President for Foreign Policy Federica Mogherini is often described as being very reluctant to be to be uh, tougher on on Russia specifically. And so uh, how can you uh, how can you have a really coherent cohesive effort if some of the people who need to make decisions, who need to approve budgets, who need to approve mandates don't believe in don't believe that um, it should be done at all. There's different ways you can tackle uh, the problem of building resilience against election interference. We've taken a, a different approach than building this response from the top down. This has been built from the bottom up, and I think that was the right move uh, in many of these countries. If you take Sweden for an example, we started. Uh, a year before the election to train 290 municipalities to get them uh, to a level of having a shared understanding of the problem space and to integrate 
election interference by antagonists into their risk and vulnerability assessments. And I think you have to build this from the bottom up to remember what elections really are. Elections are a huge process which involves you know, significant aspects of society. And to think that you can have a top-down process is... Um, I, I don't think that that would have been successful. So regardless of the reason why we ended up having a bottom-up approach, I think that has been one of the most successful uh, approaches to dealing with, uh, uh, with the issue of foreign interference. Because that means that we have resilience from the bottom up, so to say. And, and also to understand that election interference doesn't just deal with political interference. It deals with other aspects, uh, and especially uh, protecting elections as administrative processes. Sebastian, tell me what, what the most common um, methods of interfering are that, that we're seeing. Um, for example, if someone listening to this might want to you know, be, be sort of more vigilant themselves, um, tell us what, what the, the, the main things they might be seeing in their news feeds or on their Facebook pages um, that, that you identified in, in this report. So, so one of the things to think about when you think about election interference, and I, I very often bring this up, is to not only think of it as interference in the politics. When we think about election interference, we think about things that... Um, provide support for specific political parties or specific agendas. But it's very important, I think, to, to know and to acknowledge that election interference also deals with the administrative processes of this. So in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, which is, which is the base which much of the uh, you know, understanding is based upon, there was attempts to, to reduce the credibility of the election, uh, and there was attempts to spread disinformation about where and when to vote. So nowadays, on, for example, on Twitter, there are, um, there are integrated mechanisms where you can report false information about where you vote or how you vote. The most famous example is someone claiming that in the U.S. presidential election you could vote via text message, which wasn't true, which was an attempt to get certain groups of the electorate to stay at home and not vote in the actual election. So these are some of the things which uh, the public needs to look out for, to be vigilant about and to report to the authorities if they see um, disinformation aimed to deceive regarding the process of you know, where, when and how an election works. So that's, that's one of the things. And then, of course, there is threats against the election as a political process, disinformation about candidates and such things. And there, of course, what we can do is to rely on trusted sources. We can do fact-checking. We can be more vigilant that in, in times of election, there is more misinformation and disinformation being spread. Um, but the thing that most of the countries and most of this report is, is focusing on is actually threats against the elections as administrative processes, because that is the core responsibility of the state to protect the infrastructure, to protect the credibility in the result. But if you have a state that doesn't believe that, in, in this case, Russia is a threat and that disinformation from Russia is a threat, and there are EU governments like that uh, to some extent, um, they won't take as many measures to protect their elections because they may actually benefit from some of this disinformation. Isn't that a problem? Of course, it wasn't that way probably in the four countries that you looked at, but um, we certainly there are some countries where um, there are more pro-Kremlin governments who may find that, you know, it's not a bad thing for them. So, 
So, uh, so we haven't looked at that specifically uh, since the report uh, that we're talking about it, it only studies in detail what has been done in four countries that were very prepared uh, because they shared a common understanding of the threat. Is it possible that... No, so, so the question is, is there countries that are less prepared? And that will be interesting to see. Uh, we haven't you know, followed in, in, in detail uh, regarding their election preparation work. And, and much of this... And when it comes to strengthening the credibility of elections as administrative processes, I'm quite sure all countries want to do that and take that serious. Have all of them started as early as we did? Do they all have the same experience and understanding? Well, perhaps not. Um, but I think jointly uh, we do have that, uh, that experience and that capability. And that is also why the EU set up uh, the rapid alert system for being able to share these sort of indicators, being able to, to coordinate joint responses. So my hope is that having countries that are better prepared, we will also be able to help countries that have had uh, less time or less resources to prepare. Do you think that from, from just basically the, the threat landscape that, that you come across in your daily, in your daily work, um, how well do you think that, that Europe is prepared and that you're, how resilient do you think European citizens are um, especially those who actually saw what happened in 2016 and thought, wow, um, that's scary. No, and that's, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. That's something that we're looking at all the time, trying to understand how resilient have our societies become? Uh, are we better prepared? And I think yes. And I think one of the reasons we are much better prepared is because you and I are having this discussion, because this topic is being discussed. And that makes people in general aware of the problems. It makes states uh, more resilient so uh, i think we have come a long way since 2016 uh, that is for sure um, we all hope that we've come so far that uh, that we are uh, more prepared as a union um, we'll see of course but my my feeling and my assessment is that that yes we we have come that far and and um, i think the most important part is that there is this uh, joint mechanism now and there is, a, there is a strong determination among many of the countries that, that we will point out any antagonists. Will there be interference? That interference will not go unpunished. It will be pointed out. It will be, there will be consequences. And I think that message has been heard. Um, in, in your report, um, and I, I don't see this, this in a lot of detail, um, but this has come from discussions and briefings with with your European Commission officials, and it and it occurred to me that many of them, some of the things that they're tracking are sort of direct references to elections, or you know, like to voting procedures or something like that. But there are a lot of more insidious issues that also affect who gets elected, um, and and those are things like like the anti-immigrant, um, uh, you know, memes that that go out on on. On, on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, accusing Muslims of setting the Notre Dame fire was, was a big example. Um, any, of, any of these kind of, of uh, issues that are brought up and, and, you know, misinformation going viral, it affects elections, but perhaps that's not something that's being tracked by those who are looking at, at meddling. No, and, and you're right. That is, that is one aspect that is meddling into the political process. And here social media companies have a very important role to play because they are in the unique position of being able to identify and stop inauthentic coordinated behavior because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about antagonists who uh, create uh, content, upload it, 
in other people's names or pretending to be organizations and then spreading it using uh, uh, different means of amplification. If it is the market of fakes or if it is uh, using uh, their own uh, bot farms. Um, so this is something that there is a lot of actors looking at. We have the Avast network, we have Digital Forensic Research Lab, uh, we have the European External Action Service. So there are a lot of actions, uh, there's a lot of actors that are tracking and looking at this issue. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a lot of eyes on target right now trying to find this. But that said, uh, a lot of the responsibility falls back on the social media platforms because they have access to data which enables them to see if there is inauthentic coordinated behavior and 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 thankfully um, we have seen a lot of takedowns by the social media companies in the last few months uh, which indicates that they are treating this issue more serious and and we from an outside perspective hope that they are uh, that they are able to identify the bulk of this at this moment but we should we should clarify that they're not allowed to take down um take down items just because other people find them offensive. It's not, uh, and it's not against uh, any, any operating guidelines or it's not against the law to lie or to say nasty things about other people unless you're, of course, inciting violence. Um, so w what they can basically take down, as I understand it, is when, when it's not real people or when you know, it's not a, a, an organization operating under a, you know, the, the, proper, the proper guidelines. But they can't actually take down a lot of material, can they? No, and they shouldn't. I mean, we should always remember why we are here. We are here to def defend democracy, to defend the liberal democracies that, that we are tasked to defend by the public. And that means, of course, uh, defending the right of individuals to voice dissenting opinions. That is, that is the fundament. That's, that's why we're here. What we don't want is for uh, state actors and groups to manipulate this conversation using uh, inauthentic accounts, using bots. Uh, one such mean, for example, is that, that um, a state actor or a group uploads a video and then buys engagement using bot farms to make that content trend, uh, to manipulate the algorithm so that it's shown to other users. That is a sort of inauthentic behavior that we don't want because it, it's not genuine. It is the equivalent of paying people to demonstrate in the streets. And that kind of activity is not an expression of a free will. It is a, you know, it's, a manip it's manipulation. Uh, and that is the kind of uh, activity online which uh, social media companies have committed to counteract. And it is against their terms of service. So it is something that they don't want. But it's also something that they've understood that they need to put much more effort into. Um, one of the things that I heard, which I also found... Um uh, a bit alarming is that um, I heard from a, a, an official that said that even all of this talk about disinformation, which you uh, praised because hopefully we can open people's eyes, is scaring people that their elections are not secure, which again, coming back to your report, is the point of this. Um, if you talk about all the threats that are out there, people may get overwhelmed and decide it's not even worth participating. What's the point? Um, I know that that's something that disinformers are trying to convince people of, but they said that even genuine discussion, even sort of the educational process can sometimes do that. Um, did you find that in any of the countries that you that you surveyed or do you think that is truly a, a potential problem? I think all the countries have had this discussion internally. How much do we talk about these issues? How much do we inform people? Where is the limit between informing and scaring? Where do we draw the line? And 
what we have to do, what the responsibility and what our electoral, uh, what, what voters and the people in our countries expect us to do is to be open, transparent and truthful and discuss the problems as they are without exaggerating uh, or for that sake, under-exaggerating. So, uh, but, but it is a balance and, and you are right, of course, if you speak too much about something, if you make it bigger than it is, then you might end up scaring people. Um, I think though by communicating at the same time with what we are doing to defend our elections, uh, we are seeking to communicate and to reassure people that the states are doing a lot to protect uh, their electoral processes and that there is significant effort to spot and identify. At the same time, uh, in all of the countries uh, that we have studied, uh, it's also been important to talk to journalists and to underline their responsibility in monitoring, uh, monitoring the, the elections for disinformation. Um, because that should be said, uh, much of this work is the responsibility of the free press. Uh, when it comes to monitoring political conversations, for an example, that is not the role of governments. That is that is the role of the free press and of uh, of the public uh, to follow this debate. Um, and we have encouraged uh, the press to put more effort into monitoring the online space, um, but also to uh, to educate on how this information attack works, what to look out for, how to spot bot activity, uh, how to do uh, digital forensics works. So, uh, so a lot of efforts have been undertaken uh, to equip the free press to have this discussion from all angles inside, to encourage this transparent and honest discussion that we expect from it. Um, well, certainly, when when trust in in any establishment is uh, is is tarnished, as is is being done now, it, it does hurt us. When people say they don't believe us, the fact-checked people, <laughs> it's really offensive and hurtful. It is. When nobody believes anything, that that means they don't believe us. No, and I think that's one of the jobs that everybody has to do together. That that, that fact-checking uh, also means understanding which sources are credible and reliable and which sources uh, that can be trusted. So it's not about uh, questioning everything. It is about knowing which sources to trust and questioning information in terms of looking to alternative sources. Um, but yes, of course, uh, for several years there has been a, an attack on trust. Uh, in our societies and that is something where we have to come together and there is a lot of responsibility in, in, in from the media side to, to get better, from the state side to get better, to become more transparent, to try to, to meet the public uh, that have these concerns um, as we you know, face this problem jointly. Um, I asked you if you thought the commission putting out the disinformation plan um, six months early was uh, early enough, but now it just occurred to me, why is your report coming out um, just a few days before the vote. Our, our, our report, because we wanted to study the countries, and some of these countries have just concluded their elections in Estonia and Finland. It wasn't very long ago that they concluded, so we published a report after, after the elections here. But this isn't the first report. Carnegie Foundation put out a report before the Swedish elections a year ago, and we've been going around talking to, to nations about the general conclusions and the general way of working here. So, so this report is more to inform uh, officials and also the public about the work that has been done. It is not there to guide countries primarily because that work we've done in other ways by reaching out to countries and informing them and that is a process that's been going on for years. So we, uh, because we've been cooperating so much, uh, well 
these four countries jointly, but NATO Stratcom COE as well in terms of spreading the lessons identified to other countries. We realized that we should sum all these things up and inform the public about the work that we've been doing as well. So, so to wrap up, say we don't see a big attack before the elections. And I mean, the experts I talked to say it could be that, that some big cash drops just before the vote, like was tried with the Macron leaks um, uh, incident, which didn't go very well um, for, for, the, for the, the bad actors. Um, if we don't see one of those, do you worry that um, governments and, and other actors here will, will get complacent and say, well, it looks like we've got our system in place now. Uh, we must have done enough. So one of the things we highlight with the report, and that is why it's called the strategic communications approach to, to protecting elections, is because we think that a lot of these uh, coordinated attempts to protect our election, that sends a message as well. When you are more prepared, when you plug the holes, it is less likely that there will be a burglary. Uh, when you employ guards, when you do your rounds, when you mend your fences. Um, and that needs to be understood, that just because there wasn't a burglary doesn't mean that there wasn't an, uh, an actor with that intent. It's only that the opportunity didn't reveal itself because we did a good job. And I think most people can appreciate and understand that. So, but, but you are right, there is always a risk for complacency uh, um, when there has been a lot of effort put into uh, different mechanisms to strengthen. So that, that goes in, you know, if, if, if you want to liken it to, to protecting your house against a robbery that, you know, you spend a lot of money on, on fixing a fence, on uh, installing a surveillance camera, on joining neighborhood watch, on, uh, on doing joint patrolling. And after you've done that for a while, you might forget why you did it in the first place, which is in our case because our neighbor's house was broken into. So, uh, so we need to, to continue to talk about this over time, to, to remember why we did this, but also uh, that doing it might be the most deterring uh, message that we can do by, by showing antagonists that, yes, we have our house in order, but we are also extremely able and competent and we will very likely identify if there is an attempt and we will expose you with all the consequences. Can, we can hope that and that is, that is what we're aiming for. Uh, but that's, that's one of the things that we want to underline, that, that doing these things and doing them to send a message is an important aspect of election protection. Well, we'll see, we'll see how well the measures that have been put in place so far uh, work in a few days. Thank you very much, Sebastian. And thank you very much for taking the time. And that's Sebastian Bay, a senior expert at the NATO Stratcom Center of Excellence in Riga. Many thanks to him for taking the time to join me. Thanks also to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels. Of course, my biggest thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.